Well, today, if you're here and you happen to be married, whether your spouse may be sitting with you right now or not, um, depends on how long maybe you have been married, but if it's been a, a little while, even possibly a, a year or two uh, or much longer, you probably have various roles, uh, responsibilities that maybe you have found over time you might be uh, more proficient or desire to do more, and your spouse may desire to do other things differently. And so you kind of maybe share different opportunities of responsibility in your home and managing the family and doing different things. Well, in our particular situation, and this has been for many, many years, uh, my wife Charlotte really does kind of handle all of the, let's say, finances as far as the details, the checkbook, the, uh, the details of paying the bills, being sure they're all in order and organized, and she's very, very good at doing all those things. Anybody have someone in their family is good at doing those type of things? Anybody see any hands? No one? No, really? Okay. Well, you know, it is important to have someone that can do that sort of thing, particularly when you come to <clears throat> the end of the month and you want to be sure that you're staying on top of the details, and they call it reconciling the checkbook. Very important thing. And Charlotte, every single month, works diligently to be sure that everything is reconciled, and it works. So in our family, kind of, she's been given the responsibility of that act of reconciliation. You know, it works well in our, in our family for that to be a divided responsibility. But when we think about the family of God, and we think about what God has given us, the particular responsibility of reconciliation, the opportunity to be involved in that, in the family of God, is not delegated to just one or two or a few people in the body. It is something that God has given all of us the opportunity to participate in. And this is something that Paul is telling uh, the church in Corinth, even in this very focused passage. As we see the text, verses 14 through 21, Paul first, before he, as he also encourages this ministry of reconciliation, first helps us understand what the actual message, and this is so important, the message of reconciliation is. For if we are going to be and should be and desire to be ministers of reconciliation, we have to understand what the message of reconciliation truly is. Verse 18, Paul says, and all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Well, if you look at the context and understand maybe what he's saying, he's saying all this is from God. What is all this? Well, if you look at the context, you jump back to, for example, verse 14. Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died, that one died for all, that Christ died for all who would be the Lord's children. Christ died for all. That's part of understanding when he says, and all this is from God. Verse 17, and therefore it says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That's also this amazing thing that God has done for us, this act of reconciliation that wherever we were, the old person is gone. The new 
in Christ, reconciled relationship is now here. And so we have that experience in what Paul describes, that the old is gone, the new is come. All who are in Christ, all who have been reconciled, are a new creation, completely new. God recreates us. The old has become new. And this is an amazing statement that Paul makes because if you think about it, we were the ones, all of us were the ones who were alienated. Before God reconciled us to himself, we were alienated. We actually alienated ourselves from God. When do we alienate ourselves from God? Go all the way back to Genesis. In the beginning, in, in the garden, we chose Humanity chose through our federal head, the representative, those whom God created first, Adam and Eve, they chose to alienate themselves by what they did as an act of disobedience. And ever since the garden, we've been, every one of us has been doing this ever since, alienated from God and continuing to make choices that alienate us from him. God never alienated himself from us. We've chosen to alienate ourselves from him. If anything, we should be the ones seeking to reconcile ourselves to God, pleading and pursuing him and begging him that he would reconcile us because we have done so much to alienate ourselves from him. But instead, it's just the opposite. And that's what makes the good news so amazing. God pursues us. Colossians chapter 1 says this, and once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you in his holy, in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. That's an amazing gift that God has pursued and reconciled us through Christ. And now, in being reconciled, we are free from any accusation that the evil one could throw our way. Anyone else that desires to accuse us, we must point to what Christ has done for us. And so, though we were alienated, the message that God has reconciled us, no longer are we separated from him. Even when we were enemies, even when we were enemies, God was seeking to reconcile us to become his very own. And that's an amazing love that God gives, that God pursues us. You see, God both initiates. He initiates because we can do nothing in ourselves being alienated. And he completes our relationship with him. He starts and he finishes Everything we need to be in relationship, to be reconciled fully with our heavenly Father. And he does so because of his love and his grace. All that's needed for us to be reconciled, God has brought. How does God, though, reconcile us to himself? How does he do this? Well, if you look at verse 19, it says, And that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, and that phrase, not counting men's sins against them. That's an amazing statement. Not counting men's sins against them. 
That's what makes the gospel such amazing good news. God doesn't count our sins against us anymore. So whatever you did this morning, you don't have it counted against you if you are in Christ. Whatever you did yesterday that maybe you're still struggling with, that you brought into the service this morning, God doesn't count that against you in Christ. He reconciles us. That's what's amazing. Our sins are not counted against us. But you think, well, how can that be? I mean, I still sin. I still struggle. How can that be? God can't just turn away from my sin and overlook what I've done, can he? No, he can't. He can't just bypass our sin. He's holy. He's perfect. He's righteous. He can't overlook. He can't turn, turn his head away from us and just kind of wave his divine hand and say, don't worry, it's okay, pass on through. He can't do that, for that's not his character. He could not be God if he did that. So how can our sins not be counted against us? Well, you see, Christ has taken care of that. Our sins are set against Christ, set against him on the cross. And then his righteousness, his perfect obedience that he completed while he was here with us in the flesh, that perfect obedience and righteousness is set against us, you see. Our sins are set against Christ, and his perfect righteousness is set then upon and against us. This double act of reconciliation that has happened for us places both, think about this, it places both Christ and you and me in positions that neither of us deserved. Right? When the sins, all of our sin is set against Christ and all of his righteousness is set against us, then you and I are in a position that we never deserved or earned. Christ is also in a position that he never deserved or earned in his obedience perfectly. But this double act of his reconciling love is what allows our sins not to be held against us. You see, Christ receives our condemnation. Your condemnation, he receives it for your sin. He never deserved it, but he receives it and he takes it upon himself. And that's what the cross is all about. And we receive the clothing, the robe of his righteousness that we never deserve. We can never earn ever, ever. We receive that. Though we haven't done anything spiritually to deserve or earn it. We have his righteousness set against us. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, and this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. That's an amazing statement. 
your sins and your lawless acts, he will remember no more. Now, what does God mean when he says, I will remember their sins no more? You hear that phrase, and you think, well, if that's true, I certainly don't feel that way sometimes when I'm thinking about my relationship with God. I've experienced something that seems like different than that. Some of you, even right now probably, some of you here this morning feel that God still holds your sins against you. I know you do because you've told me so. Something that maybe happened five years ago, 10 years ago, maybe even something that happened when you were a child or a teenager. Whatever it may be, you just feel that God still holds that against you. So whenever something in your life doesn't quite go right, is, is just not quite as you would thought, you would think God would have it to be for you in your life, where do you go in your mind? Where do you go in your heart? You often go to that place. And you begin to replay and push that tape over and over again. It's because of that again. I know it is. God does not hold our disobedience, our failures against us from our past. You might say, well, I don't do that as much, but, you know, if I think about it, I, I, I think God accepts me, but, um, you know, he's, he's got to. I mean, his son died on the cross. He's the father. He did all that. So he has to, right? So, yeah, he does, but he has to. You might even think, even though God has saved me, I, I think, I believe, he doesn't really like me. He just doesn't. How can he? I mean, look at me. I'm a mess. Here's the amazing thing about the gospel. That thing which you actually fear is your greatest hope. It truly is. What do I mean by that? Well, Listen carefully. God is not like you or me. Thank goodness. He's not like anything, you and I. You see, God cannot be coerced. He cannot be in any shape or form manipulated by anyone or anything or any force because he's created everything outside of himself. And so all that he has created is less than him has to be, or else he wouldn't be God. So he cannot be coerced, manipulated, forced to do anything. Think about this. Absolutely nothing can God be forced, coerced to do. So let's carry it through. So if he has chosen to love you, it is not because he has to. It is because he wants to. Right? Absolutely. He wants to have a relationship with you. That's the kind of God that loves you. Nothing could make him do anything like that except 
his desire to want to do it. Not only are our sins not counted against us, but we actually become the righteousness of Christ. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, what does this really mean? We become the righteousness of God. If you think about that, you might feel, well, I certainly don't experience that on a moment-by-moment daily basis by the things I say, the things I do, those things I think. I, I don't ex- experience that righteousness, that perfect obedience that Christ is and gives me. Well, here's what it means that we become the righteousness of God. It means that we've been declared righteous. We have been declared legally righteous in God's court, his court, his divine court before him because of his son and being free now to follow and obey God's desires for our life that we could not otherwise do. We're declared righteous. And as we understand what that declaration means in Christ, now we can have and do have the freedom to follow in obedience and to worship and to give our very lives to our Father. So not having our sins counted against us and being declared righteous, these are the very things that change our hearts. It changes our hearts from the very inside out, from being self-centered, those things that we want for ourselves, to being hopefully God-focused and other-centered around us that we might minister and serve others that God brings into our path. And it would only make sense that once we have been changed by this amazing double act of reconciliation, that we, the ones who have received this reconciling love, would become ministers of this same reconciling love, ministers of reconciliation. And that is what Paul describes also in this passage, our ministry of reconciliation. First question, who gave this ministry to us? Who gave it? Verse 18. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And God gave us this ministry, it says, of reconciliation. So, who gave it? Obviously, it comes from God, not from anyone else. Your best friend can't give you this ministry of reconciliation. Your parents can't give you this ministry of reconciliation. Your brother, your sister, no one can give you this except God himself. And he imparts it to us as we ourselves are first reconciled. There's no question that God's the source of this calling for every follower of Christ. To whom is it given? Is it given to every believer or just to some? Verse 19, and that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message. To who? To us. Now that us is not limited to missionaries. It's not limited to pastors. It's not limited to full-time Christian vocational 
Workers, it's limited to no one except those who are in Christ, reconciled to him. That's the only limitation. Those who are reconciled, that is the body of people that have now been given this ministry of reconciliation. So we all have been given the responsibility to be ministers of reconciliation. How do we fulfill this? How do we become or fulfill this ministry opportunity? Well, we begin first with our own hearts. In our own hearts, have First of all, we must ask the question, we've been reconciled to God. Make sure we start there. Have you been reconciled to God? Paul even says, we implore you, in verse 20, be reconciled to God. And so he wants to make sure that everyone who he has an opportunity to communicate with has that assurance they themselves have first been reconciled with God. God, this morning, maybe you're here and you've never really been reconciled with God. If you're here and you're kind of not sure about being reconciled with God, you've never received that amazing gift of what his son has done for you on the cross, his complete act of love and forgiveness for your sin, then This morning, you might be reconciled with God. Receive that free gift by faith, believing that God has given you this gift to be reconciled. But if you have, and you are here this morning, reconciled, you know that God has reconciled you. Then once we understand that we have been reconciled, we continue to, don't don't we, every day, the need to work that out and its impact implications for our life. Yeah, as Christians, we might sometimes struggle daily with working out those implications. What might keep us from fully participating in reconciliation? What might actually keep us? Well, verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> Again, Paul says, for Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live Those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What's Paul addressing? Again, the heart, first of all, the heart of every follower of Christ. Those who live should no longer live for themselves. Now, that issue is huge. Think about it. That as we live now, as those who have been reconciled, We no longer live for ourselves, but for him who has reconciled us. You see, our life is no longer about us as it used to be. We are not the center of the universe as we used to be. Christ is the center of everything. All that he is and all that he has done, he is central. He is the focus, not living for ourselves but for him. You see, we cannot be involved fully in the ministry of reconciling and being involved in others' lives if everything kind of revolves around our world because then we, we, don't, we have no awareness of the needs around us and where Christ is taking us and desires to use us. 
you know, living in a very affluent, consumer-driven culture as we do in the United States and our, in our society and where it is right now, it makes living for ourselves very easy, does it not? It makes living for ourselves actually very acceptable and even encouraged and applauded even by the world. And it makes it a very significant challenge for a believer. You see, living for ourselves, it's the norm, isn't it? It's the norm rather than the exception. And that's a challenge even for us who profess to follow and love the Lord Jesus. Putting another person's need ahead of our own desires or our own conveniences is a challenge every day, whether in your home, whether at work, wherever you are, being inconvenienced by something that happens throughout the day or, or being challenged by something that gets in your path of what your agenda was at that moment or that hour or that day, that is where our ministry of reconciliation is given for us, that we might participate in that way. You know, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are we treasuring? What captures our heart, our time, our treasures? We fulfill this ministry of reconciliation in both word and deed. Both word and deed. As we're seeking this year as a church body, as we're looking at different opportunities in our community to see the gospel advance both in word and deed. Going to places like the Extension or Blue Springs or wherever we might go, these opportunities in our community, these are opportunities to be reconcilers, to be those involved in the ministry of reconciliation. We have that opportunity that God gives us daily, even with our own families where we live. Verse 20, Paul says, we're therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. He is making his appeal through us. We're ambassadors, those who are able to be representatives for this great reconciling love to those around us. What we say and what we do is vital in helping others understand and move towards being reconciled with God, both inside and outside the body of Christ, both. You see, as we remember how Christ suffered and endured because of what we have chosen and have done to him, and in spite of how he has even pursued us and he has forgiven us, God still reconciles us to himself. In spite of all that we would do to avoid that, to turn the other way, to run the opposite direction of where his reconciling love is, he still reconciles us. So then we move towards others and we seek to help others become reconciled to the same Lord, the same Savior that has loved us. Whenever we find our earthly relationships fractured or struggling, then we have been given the opportunity to move towards one another in reconciling love, to move towards those relationships 
in a ministry of reconciliation, to extend love as we reconcile one another. As we reconcile one another to each other, we are also reconciling ourselves to the Father. They are one and the same, for we are called to be reconciled to him, but also reconciled to those who are created in his image that he's given us in relationships. Every time we extend grace and mercy, we are assisting the reconciling process that God desires for us to be to him and to all those that we have relationships with. Reconciling one another in the ministry of reconciliation. This morning, we've been given another opportunity to deepen our relationship with the one who has loved us this way. 